0: study in the wars that lead up to the end. In Revelation chapter six, it says, now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see another horse. Fiery red went out and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another and that there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed with him and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death. And by the feasts of the earth. If the past is any indication of the future, there is war on the horizon. Wars have preoccupied the world. And the Middle East. We've already talked about that. Wars have been so common and so frequent in the Middle East that we are hard pressed to say, well, what does the Bible have to say about the current conflict? Since it seems to be an ongoing conflict. Even now, you might be thinking, well, there's always been wars. There's always been rumors of wars. What's different? What's changed? And much of the prophecies in Daniel and Revelation depended on the unfolding of human governments, ideological and worldview outlooks that would come to reject God and the God of the Bible, and that would also begin to talk about significant technological advances. The world that rejects God and the world that rejects Christ... Is facing a terrifying future. In our studies over the past few weeks. We've asked the question. What's the next prophetic war? How do we examine current conflicts. In light of what the Bible says. What does this have to do with the Bible? What does this have to do with the future return of Jesus Christ? We've looked at. Psalm 83. And a future conflict. We've looked at. Ezekiel chapter 37 and 38 in the war of Gog and Magog. You'll remember that Jesus in his own earthly ministry, when he was confronted by the religious leaders of his day, they said to him, show us a sign to prove that you are the Messiah in Matthew chapter 16, verses one through four. And in Matthew chapter 16, Verses one through four, we read these words. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say it's going to be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today. For the sky is red and threatening hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you can't discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. (laughs) The religious leaders wanted a miracle. They wanted something that would prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the Messiah, that he is the Lord, that he can be that he can be trusted. And for many people, that's exactly what they want. They want the telltale sign, the one little word or evident miracle that will take them out of the area of unbelief into the area of belief. Or even out of the area of apathy and indifference and into the area of excitement and enthusiasm concerning the coming of Jesus. Jesus responded by pointing that they could read the weather, but they couldn't discern the signs of the times. As a matter of fact, he uses the word sign to refer to his life and ministry as the fulfillment of the prophecies. And he said, I'm going to give you a sign. It's the sign of the prophet Jonah. And what was that sign? A prophet consumed and for all intents and purposes, dead for three days, who comes back to life to give a message to a group of people who may or may not repent. The Bible contains overwhelming evidence for the return of the Lord Jesus. The Bible points to the signs and the presence of those signs. Their frequency and intensity are intended to instruct us. In Matthew 24, 33, when you see all these things, recognize that I will be near, that I am right at the door. Paul, the apostle, argues that we can recognize the season of the Lord's return in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. That he will come like a thief in the night. But for the believer, for the believer who is prepared and expects his return, because we're sons of light and not darkness, we're told to exercise discernment and good judgment. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 25, it says that we are to encourage one another as we see the day of judgment drawing near And so all of these lessons that we've had, and even the one that we're working on right now, it isn't just to give you information that is going to help you navigate the difficult future. It's to encourage you and to remind you that when all is said and done, when it comes to the end of your life, does this matter? And so you might be thinking... Well, how does this matter? Well, I've written up a little cheat sheet for the Bema seat. And it goes like this. When you stand before Jesus, these are the things that you're going to be evaluated on. Now, remember, the Bema seat of Jesus is that seat whereby the believer stands before Jesus and gives an account of his or her life. You're going to be judged on how you treated other believers. You're going to be judged on how you exercised authority over others. You're going to be judged on how you employed your God-given abilities. You're going to be judged on how you used your money. You're going to be judged on how you spent your time. You're going to be evaluated based on the presence or the absence of suffering for the, for the sake of Jesus and the sake of the gospel. You're going to be evaluated based on how you ran the particular race, which God chose for you. You're going to be evaluated and I am going to be evaluated on how well we controlled the old nature, how well we turn from our sin and we turn to the Savior And embraced the promise of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be evaluated on how many souls we witnessed to and one to Christ. We are going to be evaluated on how we reacted to temptation. We are going to be evaluated on whether or not we loved his appearing. I put that on the list because I believe that it belongs on the list. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're given the signs of nature. We've talked about famines and earthquakes, plagues and signs in the heavens, unusual weather, new discoveries in space, interdimensional beings like UFOs. Um, Signs in society, lawlessness, violence, immorality, greed, selfishness, hedonism, materialism, rebellion, despair were given spiritual signs, both good and bad, false Christ, prophets, cults, revival, apostasy, evangelism, heresy, movement towards a one world church and a one world government, persecution of believers, the outbreak and proliferation of demonic and occultic activity, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, worldwide events, Evangelism and even understanding these signs. There are world political signs, including the reestablishment of Israel, and I believe the rise of Islam and Arab hostility towards Israel, that in Ezekiel 35, Russia as a threat and a menace, Asian Armies capable of fielding an army of 200 million or more. And so when you start to lump all of these things together, it should cause your heart to beat a little bit quicker and your palms to sweat a little bit more. Now, included in all of these things, we've been talking about wars and rumors of wars. And people might say, "Okay, remember. There have always been wars, but guess what? We could easily point to technological advances like nuclear weaponry, mass communication, robotics, computer, Internet, laser technology, high-speed transportation. All of these things converging at a time in history that seem to be fulfilling prophecies. So, again, why is all of this important? Why is all of this important? Because the Bible describes world conditions... That will lead up to world governance, a world economy, but it also speaks of a global catastrophe. Now, again, we've looked at Psalm 83 and remember we talked about, well, does this psalm speak of the past or the future? We looked at a a coalition of nations that would launch a war for the purpose of wiping out Israel as a nation, a coalition of nations that surrounded the modern state of Israel. We asked whether or not. The conditions in our world are ripe for such a war. We looked at the future war between Gog and Magog listed in Ezekiel 38 and 39, a war led by a prince called Gog who may represent a coalition of modern states that would include Russia and the satellite provinces that surround the Black Sea, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan and all of those Akinostans. The text identified Persia, Iran, Kush, Sudan, Put, Libya, Algeria, Tunisia, and the areas that make up modern Turkey, Gomer and Beth Togarmah. The principles in the war didn't seem to share a common border with the modern state of Israel. We talked about how they would be living securely in unwalled villages. Conspicuous by their absence was the coalition that we talked about in the first war. The Bible appears to teach that Israel will be supernaturally preserved by God himself in that war. And the big question, remember, concerned the timing. Will these events take place in your lifetime, in my lifetime? Is it possible that things could unfold quickly and rapidly? And again, what about the rapture? What about the coming of Jesus for the saints? There was a recent public policy poll that revealed 66% of adults think that the rapture won't happen in their lifetime. Yet 65% believe that if the rapture does occur, that they'll go to heaven. And they may be right. What's interesting to me about the poll given to self-described, self-confessed Christians... That 66% said they don't believe that the rapture will happen in their lifetime. And why is that important to me and to you? And I'm going to suggest to you that it's a revelation of the condition of the church, which doesn't long for his appearing and don't believe that it could happen at any moment. By the way, this has prompted me to think that next week I'm going to talk about the rapture. The second coming of Jesus is mentioned. Directly. Or indirectly. Not 100 times. Not 200 times. Not even 300 times. But 329 times. You know what I'm thinking about doing as a study someday? Just simply mentioning all 329 instances. Again, the rapture isn't the event that sets the clock into motion for the period called the Great Tribulation, but it's marked by a contract, a treaty signed by an Antichrist that will guarantee the safety and security of Israel. We know that from Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And so now we talk about this thing that we just read in Revelation chapter 6. I believe the events in Revelation 6... Come on the heels of this peace pact between Israel and the Antichrist. So again, I want you to imagine a world where the Christians are gone. I want you to imagine a world where the first war has already been fought and Israel's borders have been expanded. I want you to imagine a second war where the world, at least that coalition that we talked about, comes with the idea of wiping out Israel in its entirety and fails because God supernaturally intervenes. That war is now over. And the tribulation has begun. The Antichrist has signed a peace pack. Chapter six describes the breaking of six seals, which results in a series of catastrophic judgments for the earth. And what is this sealed book? Now, I saw when the land opened one of the seals. Many Bible teachers believe that this document is a document that really is the title deed To the entire universe, we're given a clue in chapter 5. The seven-sealed scroll was taken by Christ. John is pictured in heaven. He's weeping and sobbing. He's in an emotional state of convulsion. Because it says, I saw a strong angel saying, who's worthy to open the scroll and loose the seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open it. So I wept much. Read, sobbed, and wept like a girl. Because no one was able to found worthy to open it and read the scroll and to look into it. And then we discover that one of the elders says, look at the lion of the tribe of Judah. In other words, the implication being a real Jesus in heaven is about to break the seal and the judgment of a world that has rejected Jesus and rejected the gospel and rejected the church is about to be judged. And some again, the lamb is opening the book. He's pronouncing judgment on the world that rejects his right to rule. And that is the bottom line. Because when you look at the passage and you think about what you're reading and you're asking the question, this looks really horrible and terrible. But remember what is going on. It's a day of judgment. It's a day when all of the naysayers. It's a day when all of the enemies. It is a day when everyone who hated God and hated Jesus and hated the Bible. Is going to be taken to task. The chapter Opens with a series of seals and the description is given of a rider and a white horse. He has a bow and a crown. He goes out conquering and to conquer the presence of the bow and the absence of the arrows seems to indicate at least to some Bible teachers to think that this rider comes in peace. And if you make the foolish mistake of thinking that this is the same writer who appears in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, you're making a serious mistake. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, look what it says. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. The writer in Revelation chapter 19 is none other than Jesus Christ. The writer in Revelation chapter 6 is none other than the Antichrist. But we're left with that great big division once again. Because there's two kinds of people in the world those who are looking to the Savior, they're looking for Jesus Christ. And then there's another group of people who are looking for the Antichrist, even though they wouldn't necessarily call him that what they would call him is the human figure who will bring peace to a world that in their way of thinking, Jesus neglected to bring. And so we read a series of horses and riders, you see their color, white, red, black, Green. Do the colors matter? In Revelation, we have the red horse of war here in chapter six, verses three and four. Later on, a red dragon in chapter 12, verse three. We're then introduced to a red beast in chapter 17, verse three. It became the color of war because it was the color of blood. Blood shed. As a matter of fact, in the ancient world of the Greeks and the Romans, the God of war was represented in red terms because of the bloodshed that was spilled. And he has the authority to take peace from the earth. Now, now think about it. The writer comes and he pronounces peace. And proclaims peace and provides peace. But then that peace is exchanged for war as he exchanges his empty bow for a very big sword. And the same person who was given the authority to have peace for a moment now is given the authority for human beings to kill each other. What does this all mean? It means that human covenants and peace pacts and diplomacy will fail, and then famine seems to follow war. Now, that writer is black with scales. And by the way, the scales become a type and a picture in the ancient world of the food supply. Whoever this person who comes in, he provides first peace, then war and then seizes control, not only of the food chain, but the food supply. And that's what the scales are indicative of a measure of wheat, a quart, a denarius, a day's wage. You know what the picture is? That food will be so scarce that a person will have to work a whole day just to eat. You might be thinking, well, well that's already here. That's what have already come. A denarius, by the way, was typically a day's wage for a laborer. And then it says that food will be so so scarce that people will have to work all day just to eat. And then there's a scarcity of food for the poor, but there's an abundance of oil and wine for the rich. How do we explain that? There's a couple of ways that I've thought about this. The way that I think about it is during this time of first peace, then war, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Oil and wine were luxury items that were available in in abundance. There is another possibility that I've considered. In the ancient world, oil and wine were used as medicines. So again, we might be looking at a time When there is a scarcity of food, but an abundance of medicine, I don't think it's an accident that the key products produced by Israel are grain and oil and wine. Isn't that interesting? Because apparently, in part, whatever is happening, the Antichrist has made a covenant with Israel. He takes steps in order to preserve precious resources. Again, the text tells us that the first writer with bow and crown speaks of a global leader. The second writer is, in fact, the same writer, I think, who's given the same power to take peace from the earth. And the third rider is seen holding a scale, indicating the great famine. And who is this fourth rider? Who is the color of corrupting flesh? I know that there is a huge, huge outpouring of support for zombie apocalypse. This color is the color of cadavers. The pale green horse. The rider is called death and hell because millions of people die by sword and they die by famine and they they die by plagues and they die by wild beasts. If you look at verse eight, look what it says. So I looked and behold, a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed him. In this particular instance, Hades means the portal that leads to the place Where the dead go and power was given to them. Look at this because this is important and power was given to them. So we have more than one person now because Hades and death are in control and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, with beasts of the field. The text reads, with hunger, with death, and the beasts of the earth. Why the beasts? Where does that fit in? Remember what happens in a global catastrophe where civilization is put at risk. What begins to happen is that nature takes over when civilization falls apart. And when nature takes over, when civilization falls apart, then you are left with the unexpected issue that you can be eaten by the beasts that remain. Does this describe the death of twenty five percent of the Earth's population? I think that it does. Now I want you to think this through. We've just succeeded. The seven billion mark. Two zero one two. They celebrated the fact that the seven billionth person was born. Now, that means with current population, that means that 2.8 billion people die in a global catastrophe. Initial deaths billion. That leaves 4.2 billion human beings. In the next series of judgments in Revelation chapter 8 and 9, another third of humanity is destroyed, killing another 1.4 billion, leaving 2.8 billion people on the planet. Think about it. In the first three years of the tribulation, we see the total dead 5.6 billion people. Do you think that's going to get your attention if you go all of a sudden five out of every seven people on the planet are gone? See, that's when you go, okay. that's a sign that I can sort of relate to. In the fifth seal, John sees the souls of the martyred under heaven's altar. A request is made in the fifth seal. If you look at verse nine, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, were completed. Understand what it's saying. The Messiah says, wait. Wait a little bit longer until the full number of the servants of Jesus have been martyred. Remember what this judgment is. It's a judgment on the earth. But remember what else is happening. There is an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit as literally hundreds of thousands of Jewish people are coming to grips with the fact that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. And the sixth seal is described. All of John's senses are shocked and incorporated in the sixth seal. The verse describes what he feels and what he hears and what he experiences, it says, I look when I opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black like sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded in a scroll when it rolls up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, these are the preppers and the people who have taken guns, gold and groceries and bought bunkers in Idaho. The commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us. And hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Read it for yourself. These are people who aren't scared to death of the Antichrist. These are people who are scared to death of Jesus Christ. All of John's senses are shocked it describes what he feels he begins to feel something it's, a, it's an earthquake and what he sees The sun turns black. The moon turns blood red. The stars fall out of the sky like they're, like, like figs dropping from a tree. Every mountain, every island is removed out of place. Look at what it says in 14. Then John hears verse 15. The sound comes from caves and rocks and mountains, kings and warriors, the rich, the poor, the slaves, the free. He hears them praying us from the wrath of the lamb by the way if you want to find parallels in the Scripture, read Luke 21, 25, and 26. Joel chapter 2, verse 30 and 31. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9 and 10. Isaiah chapter 34, verses 2 through 4. There are three earthquakes that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. In chapter 6, verse 12. In chapter 11, verse 13. In chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. And I have no doubt whatsoever. But these are literal earthquakes. That these are plate tectonics of such gigantic force that the literal continental structure is being rearranged. And remember what I said to you earlier when we were studying the passages earlier? That God himself was preparing the planet. He's recreating the conditions. When he placed Adam and Eve in a garden. We're talking about global movements that will frighten everyone, that will kill millions more, even the people who watch preppers on the History Channel. This is the kind of preparation that you can't prepare for. So how does the Antichrist forge a coalition of nations How is he able to achieve such incredible dominance so quickly? The book of Daniel actually gives the clue in Daniel chapter 8, verse 23 through 25. If you have a Bible, you might want to just turn there real quick. Because it gives us the clue. It says, and in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise. Read the Antichrist. And by the way. Let me give you some facts about the Antichrist, particularly for those who stupidly, inappropriately and foolishly throw out things like, well, I think George Bush is the Antichrist, or I think Henry Kissinger is the Antichrist, or I think that Barack Obama is the Antichrist. Let me tell you why they don't really fit the bill. Number one. The real Antichrist will be an intellectual genius. He won't have to read his speeches from a teleprompter. The real Antichrist will be an oratorical genius. He will be able with pleasant words to persuade people that the last best hope is humanity itself. Remember, he will speak, but what he will do is he will make it abundantly clear that the salt that the salvation of humanity and the planet Earth doesn't lie in some God who may or may not be there. He will be a political genius according to Revelation chapter 17 verses 11 and 12. He will be a commercial genius because in Daniel chapter 11 verse 43 and in Revelation 13, 16, he captures the commercial interests of the entire planet. He will be a military genius according to Revelation chapter 6 verse 2, which we just read and Revelation chapter 13 verse 2. He will be a religious genius In the sense that he is going to be able to forge an alliance between those people who remain. And I am going to suggest to you. That if Israel has expanded its borders, according to Psalm 83, and if the war of Gog and Magog takes place, like it says in Ezekiel 38 and 39, there is going to be just the most superficial remnant left of Islam. Would it shock you and surprise you if I suggested to you that there are some people in the Muslim world that believes that this Antichrist will be their savior, but he will in fact be their destruction. He'll begin by controlling the Western power block, according to the book of Daniel. And in Revelation chapter 17, verse 12, he makes a seven year covenant with Israel, but breaks it after three and a half years, according to Daniel chapter nine, verse 27. And I am going to suggest to you that during this time, knowing that his time is short, that the real Satan, a war will be fought in heaven and he will be not just figuratively and not just metaphorically, but literally indwelt by Satan himself. He'll attempt to destroy all of Israel, he'll destroy the false religious system so that he may rule unhindered. He will use religion as a tool in order to get his way, and then he will set himself up as God. He will briefly rule over the nations. He will be utterly... Crushed by Jesus at the battle of Armageddon, which is spoken of in Revelation chapter 19. He'll be the first creature thrown into the lake of fire. He will be a master of deceit. He will profane the temple. He'll be energized by Satan. He'll do everything according to his own selfish will. He won't regard the God of his fathers. He will have not the desire of women. And his God will be, according to the Bible, what's called the God of fortresses. Or power. He'll use cunning and deception and intrigue. Now, read Daniel. Chapter 8, verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, the Antichrist, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. Verse 24. His power shall be mighty, but not his own power. What? What? Then where does his power come from? It's a supernatural source. It's a source that's not from this world. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise, listen carefully, against the prince of princes. What? He's going to make an attempt to seize the throne that belongs to Jesus. It's the throne of David, but he shall be broken without human means. What? Is there a coalition of humanity that will come against him and stop him? The answer is no. So how in the world are the nations in Asia and Africa and South America responding to this world dictator? In John's vision in chapter 13, we see a beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns are ten crowns. And on his head is a blasphemous name. And the beast is described as a leopard with feet like a bear, mouth like a lion, The dragon, it says, that Satan gives him his power, his throne, and his great authority. And we're told in Revelation chapter 13, verse 7, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. In other words, he'll win and the saints will lose. Who are the saints? Not the New Orleans saints this is the saints who have identified themselves with the god of the bible and the god of israel this is the remnant that remains during this time of great catastrophe who are the ones who are murdered under the altar and authority was given to him look what it says in revelation 13:7 and authority was given to him over every tribe Every tongue. Every nation. This is a world ruler. And again, if the war of Psalm 83 expands the borders of Israel, if the war of Gog and Magog destroys the combined armies of the outer ring of the nations and Muslim states, we're still left with this reality of the larger population of Islam that live outside of the Middle East. In Pakistan, 140 million. India, 144 million. Bangladesh, 115 million. Indonesia, 201 million. And when John wrote these words... According to people who do this kind of research. They estimated that the global population of the entire planet Earth was less than 350 million people. There's a pause between Revelation chapter six and seven. Judgment is halted for a moment. As the ceiling of the 144,000 supercharged Jewish evangelists begin to take place. And there is a light and a sense of hope that enters the world. And then there's another catastrophe that's described in Revelation chapter 8 and 9. We're given a hint that this conventional war erupts and turns into a global nuclear war. In Revelation eight it speaks of yet another third of the earth burned with fire. One third of the oceans are polluted. Revelation chapter eight, verses seven and eight. We're told that the people will will suffer in Revelation sixteen two from loathsome, malignant sores, which sounds strangely like radiation poisoning. With modern technology and nuclear weapons, it now becomes possible for the first time in the history of humanity since the invention in 1945, since the recreation of the nation state of Israel for one third of all of the people to die for one third of the oceans to disappear for one fourth And one-third of the earth and one-third of the oceans destroyed. No wonder Jesus describes people fainting from fear with the expectation of the things that are coming on the planet because the powers of heaven itself will be shaken. And then the book of Revelation in chapters 9 and 16 speak of an army of 200 million soldiers that march from the east to Israel Daniel chapter 9 seems to indicate that this is a coalition of nations that are making a conscientious effort to revolt against Antichrist, but make no mistake about it, in their revolt against Antichrist, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're flying the standard or the banner of Jesus Christ. But I have some hope. Do you know why I have hope? Because there are more Christians in China than there are in the United States of America. With 1.3 billion people and an outpouring of God's spirit. Before the Mao revolution, there was an estimation of less than 3 million Christians in China. But right now, there are not 100 million but 200 million Chinese men and women who identify themselves as lovers of Jesus Christ. How could an army come from the east? Now Again, I want you to think this through. When John's writing this, he has no idea that there's less than 300 million people on the whole earth. It took 1,650 years for the world's population to double. At the beginning of the 20th century, there was 1.6 billion people on the planet Earth in 1900. We know of only one country in the whole wide world that could field an army of 200 million people. China. But it is possible now that there's two countries in the world. That could field an army of 200 million people because India has only a few less than China. Do you realize that there are over 1 billion people living in India? Revelation 11 speaks of two great witnesses of God who preach in the holy city and to the people of the world. And in the middle of that tribulation, the Antichrist finally succeeds in killing them. And we're told that their dead bodies will lie on the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days. And then it says this remarkable thing. And the whole world will watch. When John wrote those words, it was 95 AD and Domitian was the emperor of the world. He had no idea about CNN. He had no idea about Fox News. He had no idea about the Internet. We have for the first time in the history of humanity, a technological mechanism where every single human being could watch such an event. The Bible describes them throwing a party. A victory party over the death of these two witnesses. But prior to 1957, the prophecy was totally unintelligible. But with the invention of modern technologies, people began to understand and see that maybe such a thing would be possible. And then the Bible talks about another war. Not like Psalm 83. Not like Gog and Magog. Not even like Revelation chapter 6. It's not a war that's fought anywhere on the earth. It's a war that's fought in heaven. And Revelation chapter 12... Where the principles are angels who are deployed and it would appear to take place in the middle of this period known as the great tribulation and Satan in heaven makes a bid for God's throne. He attempts to storm heaven. He's opposed by Michael the archangel. Who's called the commander of the Lord's host in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, and in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And Michael and his angels prevail, and he's cast down to the earth. He's cut off from God's throne in Revelation chapter 12, 9, and then realizes his time is over. He will attempt to energize the Antichrist. And he will attempt to annihilate Israel. So what does all of this mean? Why does this even matter? What, what about this supernatural animosity? What is it about Satan that he wants to see the Jewish people dead, dead, dead? It might surprise you. It might even annoy you. But God has a supernatural affection for Israel. Even if you don't. It was Israel that would provide the scriptures. It was the Jewish people who were chosen to bring forth the Messiah. God promised a remnant would be brought to faith. He promised that this Messiah... Would forgive sin and reconcile us to God, and that he would return. Will Satan literally possess the Antichrist? Revelation 13:3: I saw one of the heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And the world marveled. They were astonished. and they followed the beast. In chapter 13, we're told of a false prophet who will make an image of the Antichrist and he'll come to life and speak. How is that even possible? Artificial intelligence? Technology? Witchcraft? Supernatural? What in the world is happening? But whatever it is and however it manifests itself, The event will cause the world to have an undivided loyalty towards the Antichrist. And by the way, the mark of the beast is dependent on some sort of global technology that requires a worldwide government and a worldwide economic system in order for people to buy and sell. And how could such a thing even be possible prior to the world in which you live? We're seeing things that. Daniel could have only imagined. Can you imagine? The vision fills his heart. He has laid the scroll of Jeremiah, which we've been studying forever. And he weeps as he realizes that God's promises are true. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, it says, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words. Seal the book, even to the time of the end, many shall run to and fro. Knowledge shall be increased. The Bible teaches the regathering of the people, Isaiah 11. The reestablishment of the modern state of Israel, Isaiah 66, seven, the reclamation of the land, Isaiah 35, one, the revival of the Hebrew language, Zechariah, chapter three, verse nine, the resurgence of the military, Zechariah, three, six, the refocusing of world politics, Zechariah, chapter 12, verse two, the reoccupation of Jerusalem, Zechariah, chapter 12. But there's still. One more war left. You mean not Psalm 83? You mean not Gog and Magog? You mean not Revelation chapter 12 or Revelation chapter 6 or Revelation chapter 9? Yeah. It's the war that's been called in popular literature. The battle of Armageddon. The Bible speaks of a future war where all the nations of the earth participate. And during the terrible tribulation where demons initiate the war, where the birds of the air participate in eating their flesh, where the beast and the false prophet are taken, where Jesus Christ himself is the principal combatant. And Satan is in prison. The Bible speaks of a coalition of armies from the east and the north that gather in the valley that's been called Har Megiddo or Armageddon. It would appear that the armies of the East are there to challenge the armies of the Antichrist. But in a real sense, there's no battle. Because the Lord appears from heaven and he annihilates them all by simply opening his mouth and blowing Well that doesn't sound very fair. In Joel chapter three, verse sixteen it says the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. Isaiah ten sixteen says The result will be a wasting disease. Zechariah 14, 2 says it will be a plague that will cause the flesh of the soldiers to rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongues will rot in their mouth. It will be like the explosion of a neutron bomb. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark where they open the Ark of the Covenant and a brightness It radiates from the Ark of the Covenant and the armies of Hitler just simply melt like dolls of wax. And this is the war that takes place after the signs of nature and after the signs of society and after the spiritual signs and after the world political signs and after the technological signs and after the accelerator signs. You go, accelerator signs? What are accelerator signs? Increased knowledge, Revelation nine fifteen, increased population and in, in knowledge, Daniel twelve four, increase in violence, Matthew twenty four twelve, increased transportation, Daniel twelve four, rapid disintegration of society, Second Timothy chapter three. So why does God delay? The answer is found in 2 Peter 3.9. He doesn't wish that anyone should perish. But that all should come to repentance. Jesus said, when you see all these signs come together. He's right at the door. So what is Jesus waiting for? I'm going to suggest two possible answers. He's waiting for you. Or someone you know. There's another exciting possibility. He's waiting for his father to say the word now. It's now. It's time to go. Will there ever be peace? Will war ever disappear? According to the Bible, that that won't happen until the Lord Jesus Christ shows up and rules and reigns. The sad thing, even then, after a thousand year reign, there'll be one confrontation left before the eternal state where the men and women living In the world in which Jesus occupies and rules, will be given one chance to follow Jesus. So, what in the world would cause human beings, even for a moment, to imagine a world or envision a world where Jesus is not the Lord? It's because they fall prey to the ancient lie. That Satan believed from the very beginning that he should be in charge of the universe, that he should be in charge of the present, that he should be in charge of the future. You see, that's the wicked lie that clings to the heart of every human who refuses to believe that the Bible is true. And that Jesus is Lord. Next week. On the future channel. I'll be showing the rapture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. Lord we know that the world faces an awful situation. Lord, there is an unimaginable carnage that awaits the world. It will be a false peace followed by a very real war and a very real famine. Lord, we know that this world will one day experience the full wrath of a God that they reject. And so Lord we're so grateful for the time of grace. And the day of grace. And the day of mercy. Lord we thank you that every single day. Is a day when we can turn from our sin. And we could turn to you. And Heavenly Father I pray that you would awaken in every heart. A genuine love for and a willingness to long for the appearing of Jesus. Lord, we pray that we can wake up every single day, every single day, and whisper today, maybe this day, my beloved will come. In Jesus' name. Amen